What do the names Monica, Elizabeth, Susanna, and Eliza have in common? I'm going to tell you. <laughs> they are the names of the mothers of Christian men, the names of women who raised their children to love the Lord. The mothers of men who greatly influenced and significantly impacted the church during their lives. St. Augustine became the Bishop of Hippo, a prolific writer, one of the greatest Christian thinkers of all times. Born November 13th in the year 354 in North Africa, which makes getting a good picture of him very problematic. <laughs> so we have an artist's rendering. And I would say it's probably a European artist that uh, rendered that. I did mention he was born in North Africa. So Augustine might have been a little darker than that, if you know what I mean. Anyway. His father, Patricius, was not a believer at the time of his birth, but his mother, Monica, was. And both Augustine and his father would eventually come to the Lord. And their conversions are strongly linked to Monica's faithfulness and prayers. Of Monica, it is written that Augustine drank of Christ with his mother's milk. As soon as he could speak, she taught him to lisp a prayer. As soon as he could understand, she taught him in language that suited his childish sense, the great truths of the Christian faith. She was his first teacher, his first instructor in scripture and sound doctrine. John Newton, a name that should sound familiar, author of the most famous hymn and Christian hymnody, I think, a man once engaged in the slave trade, the fellow who gave us these encouraging words, I am not the man, words that continue to resonate today, I am not the man I ought to be, I am not the man I wish to be, and I am not the man I hope to be, but by the grace of God, I'm not the man I used to be. John Newton, his mother, was Elizabeth. It's not surprising we can't find a likeness of her. She was behind the scenes like a lot of mothers. Elizabeth was a strong believer in that family. John's father was a professing believer, but Elizabeth was the strong believer. And she was the one who devoted herself to John's teaching and training. And he wrote this about her. As I was her only child, she made it the chief business and pleasure of her life to instruct me and bring me up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Though in process of time, I sinned away all the advantages of those early impressions. Yet they were for a great while a restraint upon me. They returned again and again, and, I was very and it was very long before I could wholly shake them off, and when the Lord at length opened my eyes, I found a great benefit from the recollection of them. Elizabeth, he said, had stored my memory, which was then very retentive, 
with many valuable pieces, chapters, and portions of scripture, catechism, hymns, and poems. John Wesley, another well-known name to Christians, the founder of Methodism, his brother Charles Wesley, also a great contributor to Christianity. The author of somewhere between, depends on what you're reading, and I don't know who has taken the time to count, but somewhere between 6,500 and 9,000 Christian hymns, Charles Wesley. The, the song we sang together at our members meeting Friday was written by Charles Wesley. The song that we opened worship with this morning was written by Charles Wesley. The song we sang after Justin's prayer was written by Charles Wesley. And a song that we often sing during Advent as we make our way to the celebration of Christmas. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Written by Charles Wesley. Susanna Wesley was the mother of John and Charles. It is written of her that early in her life, she vowed she would never spend more time in leisure entertainment than she did in prayer and Bible study. Imagine that, if you made such a commitment, that I'm going to at least balance out my time in leisure and entertainment with my time in prayer and study of God's Word. She is perhaps best known for keeping her appointment with the Lord in a homeschooling home of many children. She gave birth to 19 children, 10 of which survived, and she used to take her Bible to her chair and she would pull her apron up over her head. And that's a routine which all of the members of the household knew they ought to respect. Don't bother mother while she's studying and while she's praying. And during that time, in her chair with her apron over her head, she would intercede for her children as she communed with the Lord. And God was certainly gracious to answer her prayers. Amen. God gave her two sons who are among the most evangelistic, among the most productive men in Christian history. Charles Spurgeon is a name known to many, most Baptists, familiar with the Prince of Preachers, one of the most renowned pastors of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England, which at the time of his preaching had a multi-thousand membership. That was like probably one of the first mega churches ever. Eliza Spurgeon was his mother. And by his own admission, Charles wasn't an easy child. He could be difficult. And he wrestled. He wrestled with the reality of God that his mother was trying to impress upon him. And he rebelled against the claims of God on his own life, which his mother was trying to impress upon him. But she was faithful. And when he finally was saved, he wrote to his biggest fan. He wrote to his biggest advocate. Your birthday will now be doubly memorable. For on the 3rd of May, the boy for whom you have so often prayed, the boy of hopes and fears, your firstborn, 
will join the visible church of the redeemed on earth and will bind himself doubly to the Lord his God by open profession. You, my mother, have been the great means in God's hand of rendering me what I hope I am. Your kind warning Sabbath evening addresses were too deeply settled on my heart to be forgotten. You, by God's blessing, prepared the way for the preached word and for that holy book, The Rise and Progress. If I have any courage, if I feel prepared to follow my Savior, not only into the water, but should he call me even into the fire, I love you as the preacher to my heart of such courage as my praying, watching mother. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to your word this morning, we do so humbly and we do so needy and thankfully. We are grateful that you have revealed yourself to us through this word. And we seek you in it. And we listen now for your voice. Speak to us. We pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to start out on what's going to be a brief journey through the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is, as its name implies, the second letter that we know about. That was written by the Apostle Paul to the man whose name it bears. In his first letter, Paul writes to Timothy. And really in that letter, he's trying to... He's trying to help Timothy understand how to conduct a church. And in this second letter, he writes a little bit differently. He's writing, as you will see, to help Timothy understand how he ought to conduct himself. This letter is written by the Apostle Paul while he is in prison in Rome, really awaiting execution. And it is an exhortation from one who is suffering for the sake of the gospel to inspire perseverance in the gospel in the face of suffering that Timothy will undoubtedly endure as well. Paul wants his friend to keep the faith. He wants him to not be afraid. He wants him to not be ashamed. And he wants him to be able to endure whatever it is that the world throws at him while he follows Jesus and while he teaches other people to do that same thing. Early in the epistle, we see that it is a tender one. Some of Paul's writings, I'm sure you're familiar with this. You've probably read them. Some of Paul's writings can seem kind of businesslike. They can be pretty matter-of-fact. They are logical, theological arguments to get right to the matter at hand. Think about Romans. Think about Galatians. But others are more personal, more affectionate. Think Philippians or Philemon or here in 2 Timothy. Some see this epistle as the Apostle Paul's last will and testament. It is written, Calvin said, not merely in ink, but in Paul's life blood. As he sits in his cell, Paul does not have his freedom. But one thing that he does have is time. Time to reflect on his life. Time to recall the important people in it, and time to pray. And he's doing all these things when he decides that he's going to reach out to Timothy just once more. 
We don't get too far into this letter before we find something perhaps a bit understated, but present nonetheless. Profound and especially relevant, I think, in today's culture. Two times in the first five verses, we find a reference to family heritage, a nod to the importance and the power of a godly upbringing. The first reference we find in verse 3 of chapter 1, Paul says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors. So Paul alludes to his heritage, his lineage. He was raised in a Jewish and a God-fearing home. His ancestors served the Lord. They loved the Lord. They followed the laws of God. And he was brought up to do that same thing. And we know that his was not a Christian upbringing. It was a Jewish upbringing. But once Jesus knocked him down, and once Jesus got his attention, and once Jesus got him squared away and pointed in the right direction and harnessed his giftedness for the advancement of the kingdom of God, it became readily apparent that all that Paul had learned and all that Paul had been taught over those years of growing up would serve him mightily in proclaiming Christ as the Messiah. Paul grew up in a godly home, as did the man to whom he is writing. Verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith. He's writing to Timothy, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. These ladies Paul mentions, they're the forerunners to Monica, Elizabeth, Susanna, Eliza, and so many more now through the ages, women who raised their children in a godly home to become godly people. Eunice and her mother Lois both had faith before Timothy did. Friend, if you have faith in Christ today, if you have come to know him as your Savior and your Lord, in whom did that faith first dwell? Who had that faith? before it became personal to you? Who showed you? Who shared with you? Who taught you about Jesus? Who taught you and told you about his atoning work, about his kindness, about his grace, about his forgiveness? The Apostle Paul was no doubt instrumental in Timothy's growth and his upbringing and his Maturation in the Lord, we know that. But as we read in Acts 16, which is kind of where we first come across Timothy, before Paul and Timothy became fast friends, before they became ministry colleagues, before Paul was able to pour into this young man named Timothy, he was already a disciple. The foundation had already been laid. And the theological bricklayers were his mother, and his grandmother, Timothy, is a product of a godly upbringing. I want to spend a little time this morning talking about the importance of this godly upbringing. Talking about the importance of parenting. And really just one point to make. It matters how a child is raised. It matters how a child is raised. Now we know it's, of course, upbringing and the family environment is not the sole determinative factor in 
whether a child is successful or not, whether a child comes to know Christ or not. Godly parents sometimes have ungodly children. And not every Christian comes from a good or godly home. Still, it is obvious through Scripture. It is obvious through the ages. It is probably obvious in your own experiences and lives that parents have a pivotal role to play in the development of their children. And it's plain in the Bible how important it is for mothers and fathers to share their faith, to share their wisdom, to share their experience, their experience with God with their kids. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a great and powerful text for this. And then, of course, we have this commandment to parents that we find in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, that they are to raise their children in the discipline and instruction. If you're a KJV person, it would say the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So we're going to look at parenting a little bit this morning. And I realize for some of you this is a difficult subject. I, I know that some of the people in this room had horrible experiences with their own parents. I know others have deep regrets over how they related to their kids. Most everyone is somewhere in between here. The theologian Dr. William Hendrickson was probably right when he said to a group of men, nothing you do will be more important than being fathers, and in nothing will you fail more miserably. <laughs> well, that's not exactly uplifting. Will we fail more miserably in parenting than in any other endeavor? Or will it just be that our sense of failure in the role of parent is pronounced beyond other of our shortcomings because we know what is at stake and we care so much? On the one hand, I want to encourage you this morning if your experience with parenting hasn't turned out the way you'd hoped. For most, remember this, the story is still being written. So keep praying and keep listening and keep parenting the best that you can. Be hopeful. The scripture is true. With God, all things are possible. On the other hand, let me inject a little bit of urgency, especially to those who happen to be raising littles right now. Let me at least caution you not to take this responsibility of raising your children lightly. Because I can say this, us empty nesters can attest to what has been said about raising kids. The days are long, but the years are short. That is true. Time flies by. And... We don't want to be like Henry Jones, who, in case you don't know, is Indiana Jones' father. <laughs> I can't believe more of you didn't know that. <laughs> Watching his son, Indy, fight on top of a tank, a Nazi named Vogel, as the tank makes its way to the edge of the cliff, 
amidst the dust and all the uproar and plummets over. And there is Henry Jones, convinced completely that he has just watched his son perish. And he goes to the edge of the cliff and he peers over and he exclaims, I lost him and I never told him anything. I know it's a movie. <laughs> I know, but listen. Of course, he told his son many things. He told his son many things, but apparently he hadn't told him the most important things. And what I want to say is that we can sometimes take for granted the people around us, that they'll always be there. We don't generally plan on anybody leaving. We don't think about those things. Whether, whether we would lose someone to death or, or the simple act of our kids growing up and moving away, why are we surprised by that? Isn't that what we were shooting for? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> what I'm saying is this before you know it these kids are grown the days can be long but the years are short so parents tell them something tell them something beyond how to cross the street how to tie a shoe Sew a patch or make an omelet. <coughs> Tell them the important things. Tell them the most important things, which many of us wish we had. Tell them the things about God. Don't assume that they're just going to inherit their faith from you. And understand this, if you don't teach them, someone or something else will. And determine now to be the primary influence in your children's lives. And do your best to turn their hearts to God. That's got to be job one. Help these little ones with their disordered loves to get their loves in order. God first. Others next. And you're going to be able to do that best if you have your loves in order. Pray that your legacy will be children who love God and who by his grace will grow up to be adults who love God. Just the way that Paul did. Just the way that Timothy did. There's an off-quoted verse whenever we talk about raising children. People like to, like to speak this verse a lot. It's Proverbs 22, verse 6. Can you quote that to me maybe? I can start it for you. You'll be able to finish it. It says, raise up a child or train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22, 6. I want to talk about this verse a little bit today. I want to offer you three ways of understanding it. Two that are probably going to sound familiar to you. One that you might go, wow, never thought about that before. So Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Traditional interpretation of this verse, plain interpretation of this verse is something like this. Be diligent to keep your kids well, teach your kids well, 
and, and you will help them establish habits that will serve them into old age. That's, that's the simplest way to read that. And some of you had parents who taught you how to manage money, for instance, and to this day, you are a good money manager. And some of you had parents who taught you how to keep a good home, and to this day, you practice those very same housekeeping habits. And some not so much. Some of you who had, had, had parents who modeled healthy and respectful relationships, and those are the kind of relationships that you enjoy today. This reality is what causes us on occasion to say things like, I opened my mouth and my mother came out. <laughs> it's ingrained in us. Our parents teach us. Our parents train us. It becomes ingrained in us, and it has a tendency to stay with us, and that is a good thing. So Proverbs 22.6 is indicating the power of, of that training and that habituation. It's not a formula. It's not a, a guarantee. It's not a promise. In fact, it is a verse that gives hope to parents of prodigals. Because here's the idea, believing if moms and dads will instill in their kids godly wisdom, godly values at an early age, then even if those kids should grow up and abandon them for a time, there's a good chance when they come to their senses, and we pray that they do, that they will come back around and they will return to what they were taught. Again, that's not a promise. We can't read the Proverbs as guarantees, but it's an indication that something is more likely to happen than not. And in this case... That is exactly the testimony of John Newton. Do you remember that? He went his own way. He sinned away the impressions of his childhood. He admits that he did that. But all the while, he said, they were a restraining force on me. Do you know all the while, his mother's voice was in the back of his head. Telling him what is right. John, that's not right. John, you know better than that. John, this is what to do. That's what John Newton testifies to, that yes, he was taught and then he went away, but then he came back. He said he couldn't shake it off. It was so deeply ingrained. Isn't that what we want, parents? To get it in there so deeply, the love of Christ, that our kids can't shake it off no matter how hard they try. This is also the test testimony of Augustine. I didn't go deep into that, but this is his testimony as well. He went out and lived a hedonistic lifestyle. But basically, his testimony boils down to this. He just never could outrun the prayers of his mother. That's what it boils down to. He couldn't outrun the prayers of his mother. So that's one way to understand the verse. Train up the child. When they get older, they won't depart from it. Ingrain these habits in them, and they'll practice them into old age. A second way to understand the verse is to consider it positively in light of a child's bent, in light of a child's strengths or a child's giftedness. That, this, that would mean the proverb would be telling us this, to raise a child in accordance with his or her natural abilities, God-given Abilities. Theologian Albert Barnes believes that. He says the proverb is instructing parents to train up a child according to the tenor of his way. That is the path especially belonging to, especially fitted for the individual's character. 
The proverb enjoins the closest possible study of each child's temperament and the adaptation of his way of life to that. This would not be the same, of course, as today's infatuation with self-expression or the insistence that we have on self-expression these days at all costs and as the source of individual happiness. That's not what is being said here. Barnes is only implying that we know our kids, don't we? And we should appreciate their uniqueness. And we should appreciate what makes them tick. And we should help them to make the most of life in accordance with their sensibilities and in accordance with their strengths. There's a third way to understand Proverbs 22.6 that might be foreign to you, owing to the way that we translate it in English. But scholars do recognize the difficulty of the original construction here. The Methodist theologian Adam um, Clark calls it a curious clause. So author Bruce Ray, in his book Withhold Not Correction, sees Proverbs 22.6 not so much as a promise of good things, but as a stern warning. He notes that the phrase, in the way he should go, is entirely lacking in the original. And the more literal translation from the Hebrew is, train up a child in his way which is similar to what Barnes, how Barnes reads the verse, but comes from the negative side, because here's where Ray goes with it. He says this, allow a child to have self-expression, allow him to pick and to choose what he will and will not do, and as that habit is formed in his youth, he will not change when he is older. That right there is kind of the sort of writing that gets us Christians in trouble in the world. It paints us with a pretty broad and unattractive brush. Are Christians against self-expression? <laughs> no, no, we are not against self-expression, but we don't see it as the highest end because we are made by God in the image of God to reflect the glory of God. So God expression is really what we're shooting for. Self-expression is fine. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. But God expression is more important than that. So no, we're not against self-expression. Are Christians against choosing? You Christians ought to tell everybody what to do. Are Christian, Christians against choosing? No, we are not against choosing. Definitely not. At the same time, and I think you'll agree with me, it's probably best if we don't allow our two-year-old to pick her bedtime. <laughs> I don't think that our four-year-old should make the meal plan. Um, probably our 10-year-old should not be given the choice as to whether he wants to go to school or not. And I definitely wouldn't give my 15-year-old the choice to plan completely her social calendar. You know what I mean. And that's what Ray is talking about. We're all sinful, willful creatures selfish. And if those tendencies are indulged at a young age and accommodated and not corrected and not shaped when one is young, they will persist into old age. Young, sinful, willful, selfish kids will become old, sinful, willful, selfish adults. That's 
That's one way to read Proverbs 22.6. As a warning. As, as an imperative in a way to train up your child. But not according to his way, natural way. According to God's way. Listen, I know it might be popular, but I want to go on record as saying it's cruel to expect children to make decisions before they have the appropriate knowledge and experience to do so. And I know that it may be unpopular, but biblically speaking, it is a parent's job to make decisions for and, and as appropriate with their children to provide instruction, to provide correction, to provide discipline on a regular basis. You know, according to the book of Hebrews, it is the willingness to discipline that demonstrates true love. That's what the Bible tells us. All discipline is not pleasant. No kidding. Anybody ever have any of that unpleasant discipline? Amen. You survived. Praise the Lord. And the Bible tells us that all discipline may not be pleasant, but that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. That discipline is a, is a sign of love. Is an outworking, a natural outworking of true love. That's how God loves us. He loves us enough to discipline us. He loves us enough to correct us. He we, you've heard it said here many times in many different forms. But he loves you just as you are. He loves you too much to leave you that way. He wants to shape you and form you. And that's how God loves us. That's how we are to love our children the same way. And that's hard work. Parenting is hard work. Again, the optimistic theologian William Hendrickson says, remember, parenting is not difficult. It is impossible. <laughs> How's this guy a theologian? <laughs> we, we have to qualify that. We have to qualify that, or why would any mother and father try <laughs> at all? I have been blessed over the past five years or so to sit in a room with or attend a class virtually with a pastor, with a speaker, with an author, uh, a man named Brad Bigney. And in, in one particular presentation that he makes to mothers and fathers, he says there are only two kinds of parents. He says there are two categories of parents. Parents are either deluded or desperate. That's how, he, that's how he breaks it down. So if you think that you have it all figured out, and if you think that you have it all in control, and if you think that you're large and in charge, and if you dare to be the kind of parent who would look at someone else's kid and say, and mean it, my kid would never, <laughs> you are deluded. You fall in the deluded category. Many more parents, especially as the kids grow older, but not necessarily, they don't really have to be old to find themselves in that desperate category. My desperation started as soon as they handed me my first son. And it continues to this day. And I had it fairly easy, to be honest. Many more people find themselves in that desperate type of category. And that is, that is not a place that any of us really wants to be, is it, when, you, when you're honest about it. Nobody really wants to feel that way. 
Who wants to feel like they, they, they don't know what to do or they don't have the answers? Who wants to feel powerless? Who wants to feel weak? We naturally resist that, but I want to say that's actually not a bad place to be. It really isn't, biblically speaking, because it often takes desperation to drive us to where we should be and where we should have been all along, which is fully dependent on the grace of God. You see, prosperity and success doesn't tend, doesn't tend to teach us these things. But adversity moves us to God. Even worry, fear, doubt, questions, convinced of our own inability, whatever, however you want to put it, those are the things that make us turn to God and say, Lord, I need your help. I can't do this. I cannot do this on my own. Parenting is hard work. And it's the kind of work that really isn't to be done on our own. Years ago, it was a custom. Several of us used to meet in my office before worship to pray. And there was a faithful attender. There were several faithful attenders at that little tiny prayer meeting. Um, but one of those fellows who used to come in every week was a man named George LaPere. And very often, and I know I've said this before, but it has stuck with me, and I hope that it would stick with you. Very often, George would pray for me at the end of it. And he would say, Lord, don't let him go into that pulpit alone. Lord, don't let him go up there alone. We need Christ. We need Christ. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Nobody should stand up and attempt to preach the word of God without the presence of God. Why would anybody think that it's a good idea to try to raise God's children without the presence of God? We need the Lord. And it is in that realization, and it is in that dreadful place of desperation, that's where we find him. It is in our own emptiness. It is in our own bankruptcy. It's in our own inability. It's in our own weakness when we go to the Lord, and that is where we find him. Just the way the Apostle Paul did. Remember when he prayed for relief from the thorn in his flesh. What did God teach him? No, I'm not taking away the burden. No, I'm not taking away the thing that has you filled with consternation. No, what you're going to learn is what? My grace is sufficient for thee. That's where Paul's lesson was learned in his desperation that I think I need this, this, and this and come to find out God is enough. His grace is sufficient. It's in confronting and admitting our powerlessness where God's strength is found to be perfect. So, beloved, as you do the hard and sacred work of parenting, Whatever phase of that you might be in, and, and by, by the way, it doesn't end. And it shouldn't. You're always a parent. Yes, your roles and responsibilities and the way you have to interact and all, that changes a bit. But isn't it true, once a parent, always a parent? And that's not a burden. That's a blessing. So wherever you find yourself along this 
journey. Go with God. And remember this, the Lord's not only working on your children. <laughs> He's working on you. He's not just working in their lives. He's working in your life as well. I mean, seriously, can you think of anything in the world that gives you more of an opportunity to be like Jesus than raising kids? I want you to think that through. And you know this, Romans 8.29 tells us, our God is committed to conforming us, his children, to the likeness of his son. God is committed to that, making you more like Jesus through all of life's experiences. So praise be to God. Parents, what an opportunity you have to bring your children up in a godly home. What a privilege to be those in whom faith dwells first. Ready, eager, wanting to hand it down. Pleading with God for the eternal salvation of your dear ones. And when he grants that, you're together forever. What a high calling is yours, parents to share the good news of salvation with the next generation to advance the kingdom of God on earth. I want us to conclude our worship this morning. We'll, we'll, we'll forego the singing of one final hymn. It's, I've gone along again. Uh, but I'd like us to close with a little bit of reflection and response, if we might. So if you just kind of close your eyes, bow your head. I want to kind of lead us through a couple of different things. First, I want us to pause and remember here, as the Apostle Paul did when he wrote to Timothy, the godly influences in our lives. Who are they? Think about them and give God some praise for the godly influences in your lives. These dear ones in whom faith dwelt first, the people who shared Jesus with you, they might be parents, they might be grandparents, they could be teachers, pastors, friends. But just for a few seconds, give God some thanks. Also, I think this morning we should acknowledge and, and as appropriate grieve where there has been none of that, where there was no one who held faith. There was no one in the family to pass it down. And the hard life that resulted at least in part because of that. And perhaps some bitterness and anger or upset and maybe Maybe if the Spirit is, is moving you in this direction, maybe now is the time to just let that go and, and to offer your version, even if it's one-sided, of forgiveness. But you don't want to carry that weight anymore, that regret or that anger or whatever it looks like, whatever it feels like. Let's spend a few moments as the Spirit leads seeking God's grace for our kids this morning.
And I, I use that term kids loosely. These could be little kids, they could be big kids, they could be adult kids, they could be our grandkids, they could be the children, the church family members or neighbors, but I want us to pray. Let's just unite our hearts in prayer for their salvation, for their protection, for their perseverance in the faith. And if you don't mind, just say the names out loud of the kids that we're praying for. And it's not going to be orderly, and it's not going to, and I'm not repeating every name. I just want, whatever child, whatever kid comes to your mind, just say that name right out loud as we unite our hearts in prayer for salvation, protection, and perseverance. For a moment, let's turn our hearts to the prodigals. The ones who've wandered, the ones who are wandering, the ones who have rebelled or rejected the offer of Christ, the truth of God's word. I'm not going to ask you to say those names aloud. You feel free to do that if you wish. But I know that we all have them. And last this morning, let's pray to God on behalf of the parents in this place that they might have the wisdom that is required to do this great work. They might have the patience. You can provide good guidance. That they would be filled with strength. And that they would know joy. Father, we thank you that you are helping us to become increasingly comfortable with our own weakness. 
far less intimidated by the things that we cannot do in our own strength and more and more willing to lean into and lean on you. For you promise to provide all that we need. Your ways are perfect. Your strength is inexhaustible. Your wisdom no one can fathom, and yet you kindly and graciously give it to those who ask. We do now intercede, Father, in these moments for our dear parents who are raising children in what might be arguably the most difficult of times here culturally. We ask, Lord, that you would protect them and preserve them, that you would fill them with your spirit and joy, that the difficulties of parenting would not overcome them, that they might feel a weight only to the point where they would be able to cast that upon you and trust in you more fully and more freely. Father, help our moms and dads to have the answers to the kids' questions. Give them a desire to teach them truth and tell them things, the important things, the most important things. Renew their strength. Equip them for the calling. Be glorified in the results. Have mercy on us, Father. We pray for the salvation of our children, our grandchildren, great-grandchildren, friends, neighbors. Be gracious. You are a gracious God. Help us in all things to turn our hearts to you and all that we undertake to do. May you receive the glory. We ask in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.